Hi, and thanks for listening to American Student Radio. I'm Sheila Raghavendran. We're broadcasting from 99.1 WIUX LP Bloomington. This is our last broadcast of the semester, but follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice for information about summer programming. From Bloom... <laughs> from... Uh, again, live... live... what is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is... This is... This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens. Conspiracy. Journalism. And lesbians. Today's episode is an interview with NPR and WBUR reporter Asma Khalid. Khalid covered voters and demographics during the 2016 election. Her essay, What It Was Like as a Muslim to Cover the Election, gave a lot of insight about the intersection of identity and journalism. She's also an IU graduate and gave a lecture in President's Hall on Friday, April 21st. Here's our interview with her. So I'll start. Uh, Since covering the election, is there anything you change about how or what you report? I don't know if there's anything I've changed in how I report. Um, I think I'm very heightened to just the importance of um, the importance of allowing people to express themselves in their own words. And also, um, I think the election taught all of us journalists about the need to um, not sort of compartmentalize people and realize that there is nuance to them. As I spoke about, you know, earlier. Uh, one of the most interesting stories I did after the election cycle was hearing from conservative Hispanics who ultimately voted for Trump and uh, despised some, some his at times his immigration policy, but decided to go for him because they thought that he aligned more with their values, say, in picking a Supreme Court justice. So um, I think the sort of nuance in pe- who people are is, is important to just always keep in mind. Um, in terms of the subject matter, I'm on a totally brand new beat. I shifted uh, after the inauguration. I moved uh, back to Boston, where I'm now working for Boston's NPR station, WBUR, uh, covering business and technology. Okay, yeah. Um, and our friend Sarah is uh, studying in France right now, but she sent me a question that she wanted to ask you. Um, so in your reporter's notebook, you talked about how for certain interviews you removed your hijab. Can you talk about what that sacrifice was like and if journalists are kind of prone to make sacrifices in, in this field? So I've heard this from a couple other friends who are journalists, but I think sometimes when you're a journalist, you have a slightly... Um, like addictive or obsessive personality, right? And when you're in the mode of doing a story, you that's all sort of you can think about. And sometimes I've even been in social settings before, like at a friend's wedding, and my husband can see the look on my face where he can tell that something triggered a story idea in me based on a conversation. And sometimes he's just like, relax, we're at a wedding. <laughs> and, and I don't know that you have the ability to always turn that off. And so in the context of the hijab, um, I also should say, I'm a really pragmatic person. Um, I don't think I'm like much of an ideologue in general in life. I'm sure for other Muslims, it would probably have felt much more sacrificial in some ways. Um, for me, and this is sort of a, a side note, but I think I've always thought of the hijab as, as a good thing. It's like a nice perk to do, but not as, a, as an obligation. So in terms of not wearing it at times, I just thought that it's the pragmatic thing to do. I need to get my job done. Um, and I knew that there were going to be impediments. Um, on one occasion, I was out with a producer who also candidly told me, like, look, Asma, they're not going to talk to you as candidly. And I said, OK, that's fine. You know, and we just needed to get the job done. Um, 
I'm sure for other people, it would probably feel like a much more um, consequential decision. So I don't mean to sort of dismiss it. I think by nature, though, I'm really pragmatic and sometimes so driven by understanding a story and wanting people to talk to me candidly. And when you know that they're not going to always talk to you candidly, you feel like you're missing a part of the story. So are there any other like techniques that you employ to sort of help people to, I don't know, open up in a more candid way? Because that can be so difficult. Yeah, I think in general, it's really probably difficult to get people to open up to, you know, say if you're doing man on the street interviews. One of the things I found that's really helpful is to just you know, I know it sounds so sort of basic and simple, but to be ultimately like a friendly, candid person. And I think that people do trust you in that way. And I think I spoke about this earlier as well, but the the degree to which I think if you are, if you put that foot forward, I think really 99% of the time it is reciprocated. Um, no matter what a person's sort of political leanings may be, no matter what else. Um, I mentioned in the reporter's essay about a woman I met in Colorado Springs who I, I met her at this local county Republican uh, event. She, uh, I don't think I'd ever met a Muslim before. <laughs> and long story short, she was sort of you know intrigued, I think, by me and said, we got to talking and she's from Kentucky, I'm from Indiana. We started talking about our homes. I mean, ultimately, truthfully, in this election cycle, having an Indiana background helped tremendously because I spent a lot of time in the Midwest or meeting people who had roots in the Midwest. And when I could talk about Indiana, when I could talk about basketball, when I could talk about steel mills around here, like that was something that people could tangibly understand and it made you relatable. Um, and so I think when you do put that foot forward in terms of the Colorado story, sorry, I digressed a bit, but, uh, she ended up inviting me to her house. She wanted me to come over for like tea and cookies. And I did. And we had a really candid conversation. It was just, you know, um, a pleasant bit of a way to spend an afternoon between two interviews. I didn't record it. I didn't think that that was fair. She wanted me to come over. She sent me with chocolate chip cookies for the road. She you know, told me that I was the first journalist she had ever had in her house. I also felt like maybe I was the first Muslim she'd ever had in her house. But I ultimately also do believe deeply that like, you know, take away the politics of your job of being a reporter. There were things that were exposed this election cycle that really trouble me in terms of our civil civic or civil, I'm sorry, civil dialogue and how callous it's become and how people are so vitriolic at times. And I think that to some little degree as a journalist, yes, my job as a journalist to always tell the truth and to, you know, engage in finding a story. But sometimes also it was about just being a human representative of a nice person and encouraging some dialogue that I think traditionally doesn't always happen between people. And that was important to me as well. So kind of going off of that, do journalists need to separate their personal from their journalist self? What exactly do you mean, would you say? Um, I think we're kind of always taught, like, you have to be objective and you have to take away your personal views or your beliefs. But then we also hear that you need to use your background. And where's the balance? So that's something that I think a lot of us have been thinking about. Um, I mentioned the podcast as being, I think, a slightly more authentic space where I think we were a little bit more um, just transparent versions of ourselves. I'm a big believer that your job as a journalist is to help people understand stories, that it's not to like be the narrative voice that's going to tell them what to think. Uh, I think that sort of implies that your audience is too dumb, and I don't think that. I think that, you know, we should believe and trust that our audience can decipher information. Uh, and our job, in my job, that election, throughout the election cycle, was to help 
us understand each other, right? Each uh, each other as voters. I heard from a lot of people you know, who said that they hadn't met, say, a Donald Trump supporter. I don't understand what people, you know, in like Kokomo, Indiana, think, which is a place I spent some time in. And I thought part of my job was helping folks in Hawaii understand that perspective, understand, you know, an Illinois person to a Georgia person to a Texas person to a California person, because those voices don't always intersect with one another. In terms of our personal life, um, look, we all have perspectives. I think that that perspective is important. And I think for a long time, um, objectivity was equated with being a white male perspective, right? Like that was just because most journalists were white men. I mean, it's not sort of a knock at at that idea. I think it's just objectively most people in the profession were. And so those two things were kind of equated. And I think you can be objective while also maintaining your perspective. We, I, I mean, people sort of see the perspective of me. I think oftentimes they're like, oh, Muslim woman. But what they didn't see was like, oh, she's from Indiana. And I would argue that being from Indiana influenced so much of my coverage this election cycle. I think that... You know, a lot of journalists did not understand the Midwest. I think I understood the Midwest far more than a lot of folks did. Uh, I spent a lot of time coming back and forth. I came to Indiana, surprisingly, a good number of times. Uh, I wanted to understand different facets. I mean, Indiana during the primary season on the Republican side was quite interesting. Um, But I think what we see is on the surface one sort of very clear interpretation of this is what a person's identity is, but often we're composite characters. So there are many things that contribute to who we are. And I think that that all informs our reporting. I mean, being from Indiana has helped me understand and connect with voters. I would say it's really improved a lot of my reporting. Uh, Being Muslim, I I would also argue, has really improved the perspective of what I can bring to the table. And, And look, I would make the case to go as far as having diverse newsrooms improves everyone's coverage. You know, my colleagues and I, we all learned from each other. We used to sit in a little pod and, you know, I was treated at times rather sadly, horribly on Twitter. And I think at times almost I became immune to the Twitter responses. But it would take Sarah McCammon, my colleague who grew up in an evangelical home in the Midwest. She would see those things and say like, oh my gosh, that's not normal and acceptable. Or Scott Detrow, who grew up Catholic, you know, and, and I think that we all we shared a lot about our background. Sam Sanders is also in our pod, and he grew up um, in Texas, an African-American guy. We all learned from each other, and I think it made us better reporters down the road. So I'm a big believer that having like diverse backgrounds improves everyone's coverage. So you talked about something really interesting about the this sort of swing pendulum um, and how there seems to be this sort of overcorrection um, that could happen. Um, can you sort of, sort of explain like what, what you mean by that? So after the election, a number of journalism institutions have been, I think, going through some soul searching. And there's been a lot of talk just, you know, among journalists that concern, I think, that media outlets miss the boat in terms of understanding the election cycle, which I think is a very valid concern. And so people are pointing to books, say, like Hillbilly Elegy, again, a really interesting, valid book, but the desire to sort of immerse yourself fully in the quote unquote heartland to understand this community. And I think what concerns me is that if you don't understand the heartland fully and you're living in, say, New York, your interpretation of Indiana is that it is all white working class. Um, It's very reductive. There's not a lot of room for nuance. And so I think people are really hyper-obsessed with understanding, say, evangelical families right now or white working class families. And whenever I would go into pockets of 
the country, you know, Latino pockets, Asian American, whatever, you know, different communities, I would often hear from them as well, as well as I should say from white working class communities, concerns about journalists not being present, um, us not understanding stories in their communities very well. And, you know, we've never done a very good job, I would make the case, of covering different diverse communities in the country as journalists. That just hasn't really been our strong suit. And so in this moment of self-reflection, I hope that as journalists, we don't overcorrect, right? Like the pendulum has already been swinging away from, say, African-American communities. Uh, In this moment, we shouldn't further swing away from them because there's really important stories that I do think we're missing the boat about. I mean, as much as this election, say, was a story about working class voters, one can make the case that it was also a story very much so about disengagement at times from African-American communities or from millennial voters. I mean, I think that, that, that there was a lot of concerns from younger voters about um, some of their interests not being reflected in, uh, in either candidate, um, some of their concerns even around socioeconomic issues, around minimum wage or college affordability. So I, I just hope that as journalists, we don't take the wrong lessons from this election cycle. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to American Student Radio. This episode is an interview with NPR and WBUR reporter Asma Khalid. Now, back to the show. So you mentioned in your talk today how a lot of people get their news from Facebook. Should we be more reserved about sharing articles and sharing news on Facebook? We should all probably be smarter consumers of news media. my colleague, uh, Steven Skeep, also a great plug. He's a fellow Hoosier, a host of Morning Edition. He uh, has written some stuff about just how to be a better consumer of news media. And so if you see a headline, I think just be skeptical, right? We're all journalists. And there's that classic saying as a journalist that if your mother says she loves you, you check it out, right? <laughs> if you tell it to your mom, I don't know if she'll like love that. But still, the idea being that like you always have this bit of a skeptical eye when you see things. And I see friends, look, I see friends on the right and the left who post things that are not always true. I mean, you could take this to some degree. So I had a friend from high school, rather conservative, who was posting patently false stories towards the end of the election cycle. On the flip side, though, I have some liberal friends who are posting very sort of salacious Maybe there was a kernel of truth in them, because this is where I think the left often does things, is maybe they're not as sort of um, egregiously fake on the surface, but there's reason to be highly skeptical of the information. Or it's that the topics that they're covering are somewhat salacious, I think, in terms of how folks are pointing out. So, you know, be skeptical of headlines. Please just, like, don't only read headlines. (laughs) Read the story. I'm a big believer, too, of looking where your news source is. I mean, if friends are posting stuff, and maybe this sounds a bit elitist, but if it's not from a reputable news source, and look, I'm not going to dismiss a reputable news source if it's a local newspaper, but if it's just, uh, I don't even know, some like national blog, because uh, look, there's a lot of information out there that's just on blogs, and it's largely aggregators. I mean, when you work in a newsroom, you understand sort of the painstaking process of getting a kernel of an idea onto air. You know, we have editors, we have producers, we have a research librarian, that there's a lot of um, people involved in that process to make sure that this information is correct and valid. Um, When we have, say, a news alert that comes across to the Associated Press, we have to wait until we get guidance notes from the editors, and they send out alerts to all of NPR so that we'll understand 
how we as a news network are going to cover this information, say that somebody died or there's just a breaking news assignment. It, it, we, we as a network, I feel like, are trying to be very careful about the veracity of information. And you realize in the Internet or throughout on the Internet, there's just not everybody is as careful. And um, I want to encourage my own friends to do this too so it's not to sound like preachy or, or sort of dogmatic. I think that we can all be better at doing this. Um, I realize just even as a journalist, when you meet fellow journalists in the world of journalism, you know which news outlets are also being more thorough. Um, there's a reason why the New York Times is such an amazingly incredible institution, right? I mean, there are editors upon editors. You know, I live in Boston now, the Boston Globe. I was talking to a friend the other day who talked about how much, how much work goes into editing a front page news story. And I just don't know if maybe we as journalists haven't conveyed that well enough to, to folks out there. And maybe we should. Maybe we should sort of like open up our editorial meetings more so that people kind of understand there's a bit of transparency behind the system. And, uh, and maybe that would help folks understand that it's not as if we're just sort of sitting there in our basement writing a story and never calling anyone on the phone to answer, you know, sort of verify information. You were talking about the future of news, and you've touched on diversity. Um, and I think we here at American Student Radio really like to, we pride ourselves in the fact that I think we're a fairly diverse group across multiple identities. So wh I guess what kind of advice would you have to us as, you know, next-gen radio producers? Or what you see, um, I guess, the future of, like, radio and diversity is? I think that podcasting is a really exciting space to be in. Um, it sort of allows, it's it's sort of, I guess, the great democratizer, right? Maybe in the past, you'd have to go to a traditional radio outlet. And in the terms of news, really, it's national public radio, right? I, I mean, I would say, for the most part, you know, in terms of good quality, say, news reporting on the radio, which I think is awesome. But now with podcasting, I think it has allowed for sort of greater democratization of that space. And I think that's amazing because you can hear from a variety of different voices. So um, I would definitely encourage folks to push into the podcasting space. There's really like sort of a low barrier to entry in terms of doing that. Um, I would also encourage people to move and to challenge yourself in terms of curing news also though in the radio space. One of the things that concerns me from time to time is – there's a desire to have sort of chatty podcasts, which at times, you know, the NPR Politics podcast was, but we were reporting the information out. And then we'd come back at the end of the week and we'd sit around a table discussing what we had done, but we had um, called people or gone out into the country and reported information. But there are a lot of podcasts where it's just um, throw a mic and four people are sitting in the room talking about their opinions. And I, you know, we talked earlier about objectivity. I think that what gives you credence to your reporting is that you, you, your report is anchored in something. And maybe it's just me, but I'm not a big fan of just listening to four people sit around a table <laughs> talking about their opinions on something. One of my favorite new podcasts is The Daily, put out by The New York Times, because it's one topic. You usually dive deep in it, and I feel like I learn something pretty much every time I listen to it. Um, it uses sound in really cool ways. Um, so I think there is an appetite. You know, a lot of people will talk about young consumers of news not having the attention span to stay with something for a long time, but I... I'm healthily skeptical of that that notion because, look, when Serial debuted, it was a long podcast, but I can't tell you how many of my friends voraciously ate up Serial very quickly. Same thing with S-Town now that came out. So I think there is an appetite for good produced content that is, like, thoroughly reported. 
And um, and I would challenge you all to push yourselves in terms of the news realm. Uh, in general, there's been a big push towards how do we say this? Like opinion-oriented journalism. We see that in television. We see that we see that in all spaces. And I think that our generation, if I can include you, not maybe your generation, our generation, let's say broadly speaking, younger people, <laughs> they they crave news information. I think it is a huge misunderstanding to think that all we want to hear from is people spouting off their opinions. I think that there is a desire to get information. Um, it needs to be accessible and trustworthy. And so I think that I would highly encourage people to go into, you know, radio as a medium is awesome. It's powerful. It's intimate. But to also pursue that in conjunction with news, because I I worry a lot about the state of news, you know, and I think people want information. They want trustworthy information and and they're not able to find it in a lot of places. You know, look, a lot of newspapers are not what they used to be. And I'm a big believer that public radio can fill some gaps in terms of just being a source out in the country for a lot of people. So I hope that answers your question. That was <laughs> yeah, I think that's great. I think that's a great moment to end on. So thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's yeah, really been a pleasure. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to our show. This is our final episode of the semester, but give us a follow on Twitter at ASR Voice for deets about future shows. Happy summer! Thank you for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students at Indiana University Bloomington. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Student Radio and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat at ASR Voice. We broadcast new episodes every Sunday at noon on WIOX and stream on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash American student radio. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.